um, Tarek, this is the kind of cheesy bit, but uh, we just are trying to build a little bit of kind of, you know, humanity to this podcast um, and to also help us in kind of pushing it in a more personal way and kind of get listeners to to listen, kind of getting to know the, speak, the guests a bit more. So maybe just a couple of questions like, why do you say, why did you say yes to be on Libya Matters again? I, I came back on because it's a great platform to reach a, a very wide um, range of people and that perhaps I wouldn't ordinarily uh, get to or who wouldn't ordinarily see my work. I mean, the amount of people I've had over the last year have come up to me and their way of saying that they know me or they've heard of me is through the Libya Matters podcast, not through, I think is, yeah, it shows that this is a really great platform and the world is bigger than politics. So it's great to reach that wider world. Do you listen and why do you listen? No, I do listen to it um, because it, it gives kind of a fresh but still detailed look at a subject area that, you know, can get stale if you only look at it through the same lens all the time. You know, like, so for example, last season, yeah, the episode of, of, on CSOs, the episode on accountability, you know, there are so many kind of fresh perspectives on this age old problem that I just haven't had before. So it's very interesting to have a detailed, uh, you know, slice into that new perspective. When you think about justice or accountability, what do you think about? Courts? Judges? Evidence? Jail? In this episode, we talk about all things international criminal law, how it differs from international human rights law and international humanitarian law, and where they intersect. We talk about why criminal justice has been so hard to achieve in Libya and why we should not give up on the International Criminal Court just yet. Making the case for the ICC and helping us navigate all matters criminal is Alex Whiting, professor of practice at Harvard Law School, head of investigations at the Specialist Prosecutor's Office at the Kosovo Specialist Chambers. And before all of that, he led the investigations at the ICC for the Libya situation. And even before that, he was at the Yugoslavia Tribunal. So let's just say he knows his way around a criminal prosecution. Enjoy the episode. Uh, hi, Adhem. Hi, Marwa. So, congratulations. Yes, we finally have a fact-finding mission. Do you believe it? How many years did it take? We talked about it in episode 13, I think, because it was being voted on and now we have it. And hopefully a positive step towards holding like real perpetrators actually accountable for human rights violation in IHL in the way that it's framed. Hopefully. Um, I think that in by, I mean, in... In no means are we done, right? So now it, the heavy lifting begins. We have to, you know, um, we want to see a strong uh, mission. So to get that, we, we advocate for strong members, proper resources, and real access for it to actually fulfill the mandate that it's been given. We need to start scratching our heads and thinking of, of people. Yes, we do. Well, it sounds like a really positive way to be starting today's episode, because I think if, if we had somehow failed on the fact-finding mission as we're going into a conversation about accountability in the context of international criminal law, I think we would feel a little bit more deflated. But um, I'm, I'm happy that we're entering today's episode with a bit more positivity. Uh, you might remember that in episode four, we talked about accountability with Carla Firstman. And there we explored sort of different options of accountability. It was, a, it was almost an overview or a whistle-stop tour of the options we have. Among the things we discussed was criminal responsibility and using international criminal law. So here we're talking about putting or pursuing individuals for crimes committed under international, international law, right? So this is like the ah moment of accountability where you can actually get individuals. 
Um, and that's the topic we're talking about today. It is. And um, I'm looking forward to this and hopefully bringing the conversation full circle by also looking at how the fact-finding mission, that is my obsession now, um, uh, the fact-finding mission can support criminal accountability. So with that being said, and without further ado, let's get started. To help us unravel all of this is Alex Whiting, who's professor of practice at Harvard Law School. And al although currently he's on leave to, to be the head of investigations at the Kosovo Specialist Prosecutor's Office. He's also a member of LFJL's advisory board, which is a very proud moment for us. Before all that, he was responsible for the coordination of investigations and prosecutions at the International Criminal Court, including, crucially, during the time when the Libyan situation was referred to the court. That is when I first met him. Um, Alex, welcome to Libya Matters. Do you remember how we first met? I remember that we met in the context of the, uh, of the Libya case. I can't say I remember the, the moment of first meeting. On here, I, I thought I was a memorable, a memorable person. <laughs> It, was it embarrassing? <laughs> no, no, me? no, no. It, it absolutely, <laughs> it absolutely wasn't. Um, we had been pursuing you for so long by sending these kind of regular briefings to the court and asking the court to look into Libya, etc. And there was like sort of this period of of silence, and then all of a sudden, there's this flurry of excitement of, um, of the investigations team calling us and saying, "Oh, we'd like to sit down with you and see." you know, see what's going on. And it, it for a start, for, at the start, I felt it was like a really bad joke by a friend who knew how obsessed I was with getting the court involved, tricking me into saying that, you know, the, hi, I'm, I'm the coordinator of investigations at the ICC and I'd like to have a conversation. And I went, who is this? Um, but thankfully it was actually you. So I'm, I'm grateful for that and uh, for the conversations we had subsequently. I certainly remember the conversations and the assistance that you gave us uh, during the investigation um, in terms of helping us uh, navigate our way through the through the different areas and understand the context and uh, it, it was it was enormously helpful and it's funny that you remember the beginning that way because that 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 actually says something about international criminal investigations because um, what happened was we were things things were starting in Libya and we had no jurisdiction in Libya because Libya was was not a member of the International Criminal Court, still is not a member of the International Criminal Court. So we couldn't really pay attention to it. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, the Security Council referred the case to us. And so from one day to the next, we went from, we went from, we're not paying any attention to that. We have no jurisdiction. There's nothing we can do there to this is our case, and it's now the most important case that we have because the Security Council has unanimously referred it to us. So, so that's why from one day we're paying no attention to you, and then the next day we were desperate for your assistance. Well, that makes me feel better because it just felt like this kind of hot pursuit that was utterly unrequited for a while. Um, we'll pick up on the referral process um, as we have the conversation, but but really, you know, welcome to this, and I'm really looking forward to this to this conversation. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Maybe we can start with contextualizing international criminal law in the wider context of international law and accountability. How is it different from human rights law or international humanitarian law, and where does the where does it cross over, if at all? How do we apply it? Just to kind of try to set the scene for the conversation we're having. Right. So you kind of put your finger on it in the introduction when you said it's about 
international criminal law is about holding individuals criminally responsible. And that that is really what distinguishes it from international human rights law or international humanitarian law. Human rights law is about is largely about individual claims against the state uh, for redress or better treatment um, or or respect or preservation of rights uh, vis-a-vis the state. International humanitarian law is about is about rules of war uh, and about about how armed conflict has developed in the modern era um, over over a long period of time to have certain rules about how you fight and about who's a combatant, about who can be targeted, about who about conduct to make war paradoxically make war more humane, right? Um, which is a con- which is controversial and a whole other topic. International criminal law uh, captures a little bit of both of those two disciplines, and it is about uh, holding individuals criminally responsible for violating the rules of of war, uh, the laws of war, or for ho- holding individuals responsible for attacks on civilians, so crimes against humanity, for example, or genocide. So it, it, it kind of t- draws from both disciplines to create, a, to create a body of criminal law that is focused on the laws of war and mass atrocity committed against civilians. So starting on a positive note um, and, and taking this uh, further, why should we celebrate the existence of, of the court? Well, let me let me take a moment, if I can, to to put the court in some context, right? Uh, because oftentimes we focus on the shortcomings of international criminal law, of its institutions, in cor- including the the International Criminal Court, um, but. The, and there are shortcomings, and, and we can talk about them, and there, there are problems and challenges. But we shouldn't lose sight of, of the fact that the existence of an international criminal court is an extraordinary achievement, uh, and a, really an incredible thing for the world and for humankind. And a very recent development, this whole field of law is uh, is just beginning. It's, it's really new. So new that when I was in law school, which was a while ago, but not that long ago, uh, this field didn't really exist. It was, it was uh, a topic of history because the only time that international criminal law had been applied by an international body was by the Nuremberg Tribunal. And, and then by the Tokyo Tribunal after World War II. That, that happened and that seemed like a, 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 an important moment in the creation of, of rules of war and accountability for horrific crimes that occurred in, during World War II. But then, but then the project just died. Uh, and it was reborn, uh, again, after I graduated from law school in, in 1993 in, in, Yugos- in the wars of Yugoslavia, when the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia was set up, and then Rwanda, and a, a series of of ad hoc tribunals were set up, and those those 
could have many people thought that those would not do anything that they that they would be symbolic that that they would never that nobody would ever really be prosecuted um nobody would ever be captured nobody would ever sit trial in the hague but 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 they were enormously successful and we can talk about why that was because it was a special moment in history and then that led to that created momentum and energy for the creation of the international criminal court and now we have that we have a court, uh, a, a permanent international court that is that has 122 states parties, I believe. The number changes uh, uh, now and then party when states join and one or two states have left. 122 states parties, which is uh, a, a overwhelming majority of the states in, in the world, many important states are our members of the court. Um, that is incredible. In, uh, in 1990, if you had said to people that this court would exist, that it would be functioning, that it would have trials and judges and prosecutors and defense lawyers and convictions and acquittals and opinions and 122 states parties, uh, people would have thought that you were dreaming. Uh, so the, the, the fact of the court and the establishment of this body of law, which is, he, I think, here to stay, is, is an incredible achievement. Um, and it has, uh, I think, the, both the ad hoc tribunals, the one for Yugoslavia, for Rwanda, for Sierra Leone, for Cambodia, and the International Criminal Court have established a principle of accountability uh, that is now part of our fabric and that we we almost we almost take for granted as a principle, perhaps not as a reality, right? Because oftentimes we talk about it as a as a failure of of, of accountability, but we believe in it. We believe in individual criminal responsibility. We believe that people are entitled to it, that it's possible. It is part of the conversation and that uh, it's part of the, it's part of the demands of victims. It's part of the conversation. It's what people think about and talk about. There is no conflict in the world now where this is not part of the discussion, where where war crimes, uh, crimes against humanity, genocide, who might be responsible, what the evidence is, uh, who might, which institutions might have responsibility, how there could be accountability. There's no conflict where that's not part of the discussion. And to me, that is the achievement of these institutions in the International Criminal Court. Let me probe that, if I may. How long can we continue celebrating its existence as opposed to its product? Because I think that's where I get a little bit um, uncomfortable. And, I, and I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm drinking the Kool-Aid. I'm fully bought into the ICC as a concept that, that I'm not disputing that. But for me, I think there's a risk that it, it becomes just a theoretical conversation and uh, a point to use as advocacy to say, oh, you know, um, we have this conflict. We ask all parties to please adhere to international humanitarian law. Otherwise, there will be consequences. But if actually the consequences are very rarely forthcoming, then after a while, surely even the conversation becomes moot and becomes one amongst the believers and not the wider, the wider audience, if you like. And, and I think that's the bit that I find 
uncomfortable in the sort of, and, and uh, this is not to take away from the success in it, in it existing, but it's almost like, okay, so yeah, so you gave birth to this thing, but at some point you have to, you know, deal with it going through adolescence and deal with it becoming a functioning adult. And at the moment is still a toddler and a frustrating one at that. And so I think it's kind of like with everything you have to nurture it and how do we stop celebrating its birth 10 years, 20 years, almost 20 years later. That's, that's a, that's a very fair point. And there is, there is always a risk that, uh, that these, that it will become symbolic, that they'll become empty promises, that cynicism will set in, um, and, and that, and that this project will be a failure. Um, I think that what the, to, to, to answer your question, I think that what we have to focus on is an understanding that creating the institution was just the first step. Uh, just that I, I sometimes have a sense that people imagine that because there's an international criminal court, it should function like any criminal court that we might be familiar with of, of a well-functioning criminal court in a, in a, in a well-functioning domestic system that, you know, it all build it and they will come. But, the, but, but the court is, 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 as built as a building and there are people who work there, but, but what we have to do to make it work is, is fulfill its promise. And, and there has to be a commitment every single day, every month, every year, uh, by largely by states, uh, and powerful states to its success. And, and so I, I guess what I'm saying is that the, the International Criminal Court was not a project that was, it's built and now, and now is it going to succeed or it's going to fail? It's an ongoing project. The building is built, but now the process has to be, continue to be built and, and constructed and developed. And if it's, if it's not, uh, if the, if states give up on it, uh, then, then that's, then it will become what you fear, it'll become irrelevant uh, and ineffective. Having said that, it's really, it's a, it is a long-term project and it's going to be an episodic project. So the court, it's not a trajectory that's going to go in one direction, up or down. It's going to be a bumpy road. Uh, it's going to have successes in some places and, and it's going to fail in some places. And what you hope is that over time, there are enough successes that it builds both credibility and most importantly, an expectation uh, that this is what is required, that this is what victims are entitled to. Um, in, in the countries that we're living in right now, this is not true of every country, but, but I'll just speak of the countries that we're living in right now. If we if we walked outside right now and we and a crime, heaven forbid, were committed against one of us, we would have an expectation of some action by the state of and and if 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 the police came or the judges came or the prosecutors came and said, you know what, it's too hard, it's too expensive, it's too complicated, uh, we have more important things to to deal with. Um, we would be we would be outraged, shocked, uh, and we would insist that this is part of 
what we're entitled to as part of a functioning society. And the same, we have to get to the same place with international criminal law. Uh, we have to get to the same expectation uh, that victims of mass atrocity are entitled to um, to have justice um, the same way that we would in 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 our domestic systems. I guess just to follow up on the bumps that you mentioned along the road, I think one one key bump for me is in the is in the um, is in actually the setup of it, right? The fact that states opt in, I'm put, putting aside the Security Council for a second, and we'll get to that when we look at, at the next section. But the fact that people have to opt in to it is not like a normal, it's another way that it's different to a normal criminal court in a normal domestic jurisdiction. You don't say, well, actually, I'm agreeing to be bound by this. You're, you, you are deemed to be bound by it by the community that you're in. And in the international community, you would hope that the court would have bind everyone. But the fact that it's an opt-in process is... I think a fundamental bump from the bumps we've discussed. Yes, that's the it, the 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 comparison that I introduced between international criminal law and domestic criminal law uh, breaks down at, at a certain point, and and you've put your finger on it. Um, the the international criminal law is is constructed of of it, it's international, so the states are are. Are part of it, and it and it operates across borders and in 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 multiple states, but there's no there's no overarching international government, international legislature, international elections. So it is the court, the international court, is superimposed on a system of sovereign nations that operate independently from one another that have their own. Uh, political systems, their own let uh, their own judicial systems, and when you superimpose uh, an international system, you, 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 those two things are are going to be in tension. So, the the international criminal court was a creation of, it's not a creation of some super body that says oh, states you have to be part of this and you have no choice and you're all bound by it. It was a creation of states. And so states get to decide if they're going to be part of it or not. Once once they decide to be part of it, and 122 states have decided to be part of it, then then it's binding. Then the law. Then there's a law, and there, there's requirements to follow that law, and the states are more or less compliant with the law. And we can talk about that. But but the but the setting up is. A vol- is necessarily a voluntary process, uh, and that is that is a that is a weakness of international criminal law. There, it, similarly, there are no international policemen. There are police women. Uh, they they can't. Uh, the the investigators of the international criminal court um, don't have police powers when they go operate in the countries where they're investigating. They're dependent even there, even in the investigative process, on the states cooperating. That's the, that's really the whole process of development and creation that still has to happen, is persuading states to sign up to this, uh, to agree to it, to uh, bind themselves to it, to respect it, to... Uh, cooperate with the court. 
Um, so there is that's the ongoing political project that that results in legal consequences. But it's an ongoing political project that that has begun, but it's just the beginning to get states to agree to this set of laws and to an institution that will enforce it. So now we, we go to Libya, where, as we know, the court got involved, not because Libya signed up uh, to the Rome Statute, but through a Security Council referral. We are, we're lucky that you were involved uh, in the court at the time, and maybe we can understand how that, initiate, that initial engagement happened and, um, and that kind of level of enthusiasm that has since died out, I would say. As I said in the, in the, at the beginning, when the events started happening in Libya in, in February of 2011, we did not, we were aware of them, but did not focus on them to any great degree because we knew that, or, or we believed that we would not have any role there because Libya was not a, a state party. And the court has jurisdiction uh, over crimes that occur on the territory of a state party or by a national of a state party, or and here's the important bit, if the Security Council refers a state to the International Criminal Court. We didn't expect that that was going to happen uh, because, of course, on the Security Council, the five permanent members each have a veto, and and so any one of the five uh, P5 can block a referral to the International Criminal Court with the veto. So we thought that one of them, if, if the idea even ever arose, one of them would block the referral. But the events in the events in Libya uh, unfolded very quickly, and there was a, a palpable fear, uh, I think, in the United States and in certain European countries that uh, that that it could really turn into a, a, a disaster and that it could be another uh, another uh, mass atrocity on a on an enormous scale uh, as happened for example in the former Yugoslavia or in Rwanda and the number of the leaders at the time were did, were afraid about that happening on their watch so they made a very quick decision it happened very quickly to vote a resolution in the, in the Security Council referring the case to the International Criminal Court. So, and it happened over a weekend. So on the Friday before that weekend, we had no expectation. And on Monday, we were, we were meeting uh, because we had a new case on our docket. And the, the, the other thing is, as I, as I talked about before, this is the, the, the court requires political support and political engagement uh, for it to, to function, political backing. And when the Security Council unanimously refers a case to the court, that's a moment of high support. Uh, the world was had tur turned to the International Criminal Court and said, investigate and, and uh, look into this. So in the early days, we, ha we had... Uh, not only did we have the benefit of Elham's wisdom and her ideas and knowledge, but
but we also had states that were calling us up and saying, well, how can we help? What kind of evidence can we provide? What kind of support? And of course, getting into Libya was complicated because uh, even though parts parts of it uh, were controlled by the rebels uh, against the government, um, the, the 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 situation was fluid and 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 dangerous to go in. But an enormous amount of evidence was flooding out of Libya. People were leaving. Uh, journalists, NGOs were going in, coming out. So in in Italy, in Malta, in the United in United Kingdom. Uh, people were arriving with evidence, witnesses, and so we were able very quickly to to start to identify potential witnesses, to get evidence, uh, connections of the of the government to the to the alleged crimes, and 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 in addition, uh, we were advantaged because the the crimes we were investigating in the in the early days were those. Uh, being committed by the government, and the government was very, uh, very tightly controlled um, by Gaddafi and the and the circle around him, and that was quite easy to establish. So there was no doubt that actions that were being taken um, by security forces, by government forces, were being directed. They they weren't. They weren't crimes of rogue soldiers. They weren't uh, undisciplined units that were doing things on their own. They were being directed from the very top. And Gaddafi, of course, was making speeches about the intent and and what they were trying to do. So, connecting the the crimes on the ground to the to those responsible in the senior leadership was was not as difficult as some of the other cases. And so we were able to move very quickly and. We, and with enormous support, we actually brought uh, arrest warrants to the court within a few months. But, but you alluded in your question. You 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 said that, uh, and this is right that the that the support was was momentary. And the the prosecutor Luis Moreno Acampo at the time, right from the beginning, he said about the support that we were receiving, he, he, he recognized right away that it wouldn't last. He said, this will not last. We have to move quickly because the support will disappear. And, and that was right. We got the case in February. By June or July, the states were already looking to move out of the conflict, to wrap it up, to be done with it. It was dragging on longer than they had expected. Um, they began to see our efforts as a potential impediment to a deal, to some sort of negotiated resolution. Um, and so already then, already within a few months, the political support that I talked about that is so important for the work that the court does was starting to uh, dissipate. Uh, fortunately, we had moved quickly and we brought the cases and they were they were announced um, at the beginning of the summer. Um and we can talk about how those cases unfolded, but we, the lesson there was to was really to seize the moment, uh, and the the circumstances this aligned so that we were able to do that because we had support and it was a type, a a, a type of case that could be investigated relatively quickly. Not all cases are like that, and so we were able to move, to move quickly. After that. 
we had less success in getting the accused to the court. Of course, Muammar Gaddafi himself was was killed before he could be apprehended, or or as soon as he was apprehended, let's say. Um, and then the two other accused, uh, Saif Gaddafi and um, Abdullah Sunusi, they're, they're, the Libya wanted to keep their cases in Libya and do them themselves, um, which they were able to do with the Sunusi case uh, uh, controversially because there's much criticism of the case. Um, but with the Gaddafi case, they were never able to do because he was he was not under the control of the government and they were never able really to to bring that case um, forward. And so he remains, Gaddafi, the son, Saif Gaddafi, remains a fugitive to this day of the International Criminal Court. Some of you, or maybe even one of you, is wondering, how can I make a difference or push things forward or achieve accountability? Well, it's really quite easy. Just two clicks away. Go to libyanjustice.org and click on Donate to make a one-off donation or to give regularly. There really is no such thing as too little or too much. Your support is crucial to achieving justice in Libya. Thank you very much. But for now, enjoy the episode. In my mind, the Libyan case is entering its 10th year. So our anniversary is next year. And not a single person has been held to account, not even within the court's custody even. Um, we have only had one person indicted for crimes outside the 2011 events that you have explained. Um, and this is despite continued commissions of crimes and series of civil wars this doesn't marry up then when we think of the prosecutor constantly claiming that the investigation is active and just recently saying that she will not hesitate to expand her investigation and potential prosecutions. So we have, so I have my theories on this, <laughs> but I want to get your insight first. Why does it look like the court has been stagnant? And I, I know you picked up on the fact that obviously the evidence was stronger or more maybe not stronger, but more clearly linkable to individuals in 2011. And I understand that. But then at the same time, that can't be the only explanation for this because there is strong evidence and there is very strong um, links to certain individuals. And you wrote about that, Alex, about the links to, you know, for example, the LNA's activities in Khalifa Haftar. And he had similar actions of speeches and the like that were used in the Gaddafi file. And so I'm wondering again of what it is about the Libya case that has made it seem at least, and we, I'm, con I'm aware that stuff happens behind the scenes, but that we've, you know, since 2011, there's only been the arrest warrants for uh, Urfelli that are not linked to the 2011 events. Or are there hundreds under seal that we just don't know about? There may be, there may be indictments under seal. I think it's likely that there are indictments that I wouldn't, I, I would be surprised if it were hundreds. Um, the, 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 the the reality of the court is that because of its resources and its demand, the demands on the court, it's investigating in eight or nine different countries at one time right now, um, it will only be able to do a few cases uh, in each country. So it's never going to do hundreds in any country. Uh, it, it'll do several or, or 10 if, it's, if, if it does a lot. Um, and the idea is that the International Criminal Court is not set up to prosecute all of the perpetrators from, from a, a conflict. It is set up to perpetrate, to do two things, to first and primarily to motivate states to 
prosecute them perpetrators themselves. And I'll come back to that because that was critical in the Libya case. And secondly, to uh, where states fail to do that, to prosecute those most responsible, uh, to at least hold those people accountable, and hopefully to motivate through those prosecutions the states to prosecute people who are, le- who are middle or lower ranking in, in responsibility. Now, the thing that was very striking about, about the Libya case and made it distinguishes it from many of the other cases that have been prosecuted at the inter- at the international tribunals, the International Criminal Court or the ad hoc tribunals, is that Libya, once once the government fell uh, and there was a new new government actors in place, they express immediately express a very strong desire to bring the cases themselves. And that that was a moment of real promise that was unfortunately lost because I I have no doubt that there was uh, among many of the people in power then a a genuine desire to have accountability and to do it right and to succeed. Um, however, the security situation, the ongoing conflict, the fracturing of the country very quickly got got in the way. Um, and there was questions about processes and procedures and the right way to do it that also tangled up the, the process. So for example, the Sanusi case was brought forward, but it was criticized for, for falling short on due process grounds. So the story of the, the Libya case for the International Criminal Court has been this sort of push-pull about the International Criminal Court wanting to play a bigger role to, to bring cases, as you say, after the first three were indicted, two more individuals have been indicted, uh, at least openly. I suspect there are some other indictments under seal. And the the ICC has continued to assert its jurisdiction, even though the grant of jurisdiction was was in 2011 and pertained to the conflict that was happening at the time. The ICC has asserted that the the conflict has never really stopped that is ongoing, that even though the government fell in, in the summer of 2011, the conflict has continued and the crimes alleged, the alleged crimes have continued. So the ICC continues to assert jurisdiction, even though the Libya is not a member of the court, but it has not been able to persuade any of the powers in Libya, and I know that they're now fighting powers, but any of the powers in Libya to um, cooperate enough with the court to arrest any of the accused and surrender them to the to the court or to proceed on the cases themselves. So there's a little bit of this um, te- this you know push pull between the powers in Libya and the court about who's going to who if anybody will be able to do these cases. And and maybe a clarification for our listeners because we've we've referred a few times to this concept of a sealed arrest warrant. Can we just demystify that because it se- it seems like this very kind of um <laughs> you know, secretive process. What is a sealed arrest warrant? An arrest warrant comes to be as the the prosecutor submits evidence to the to a judge, to the judges, a pre a, a pretrial uh, panel of judges, um, su- supporting an arrest warrant, showing that um, there's sufficient evidence that an individual has committed has committed crimes. 
to uh, justify that the person be arrested, brought to The Hague, and stand trial. And that process that that process of submitting the evidence to the to the judges is done um, in secret. And then once the arrest warrant is issued, that arrest warrant can be made public, uh, as has been the case in, in many of the arrest warrants, or it can be kept under seal uh, until the person is actually arrested. Uh, the advantage of that, of course, is that it, if people don't know that they've been indicted, they are. It's easier usually to arrest them. Uh, they might travel to another country where they'll be arrested, or even they'll be arrested by the government uh, in Libya itself. So, the only reason to make it public is if you think that making it public will increase pressure on certain actors to force the person to be surrendered. So it's a it's a matter of strategy about whether it's made public or, or under seal, um, but the the many people have speculated that there are, and I, and I have no information; it's just speculation that there there could exist under seal arrest warrants because um, there is, as you said, Elham, there's certainly evidence out there of of crimes that and the the and therefore. It seems likely that the court would have proceeded to get some arrest warrants against some additional people. So there could be an arrest at any time, um, but it requires cooperation and support from from either the government or a non-state actor uh, or a third country to effectuate the arrest. Just to kind of follow up on that, because I think that in in my work, on you know in, in trying to for years now uh we've been trying to push this fact-finding mission or, or some form of of uh invest independent investigative body um for libya that can that can pursue um accountability for you know or a step towards accountability for the um for the ongoing crimes committed one of the uh, the obstacles in itself, or one of the kind of counter um, arguments that we've received in in the early years, of why this is not necessarily uh, a good idea or unnecessary for Libya, because the ICC has jurisdiction over Libya. So it actually became a very you know uh, became very frustrating because yes, the ICC has jurisdiction. We we know that like you properly. Um, pointed out, Alex, that the ICC is not going to go after everyone. They will go after the big fish. Um, and But it did kind of place a... It, that jurisdiction made it a bit more difficult to get an extra body that can carry out the investigations, while the ICC, as we were seeing, um, has, in, in, you know, in the 10 years, has not... Um, has not held anyone accountable on the file of Libya. And so I think that, you know, that kind of, um, that kind of frustration um, was, was kind of towards the ICC was, was very much there. But I think now that we finally do have this fact-finding mission um, that's been approved by the HRC, and, and what we've always said is that whatever independent body, it will complement the work of the ICC, because the ICC is not uh, going to go after everyone. Uh, how could you then um, imagine that 
that that mission or that body can complement the work of the ICC and and support the the work of the of the court because it's not a a I mean the the fact finding mission is only an investigative body at the end of the day. You've put your finger on a really fascinating development that was unexpected in this field, uh, in the field of international criminal law, with the creation of the International Criminal Court. When the court was created, there was the there was the expectation, which, as you say, you encountered in the early years when you were trying to set up this fact finding mission, that the that the court would be, the that would the court would handle everything, that it would take care of everything. That now that there was a permanent international criminal court, that you would no longer need ad hoc tribunals, special tribunals, domestic tribunals, hybrid tribunals or fact-finding missions or special commissions of inquiry and so forth and so forth. And uh, and I remember in the early years when the, when the International Criminal Court was set up and whenever there was any discussion about, well, maybe we should set up a, an ad hoc tribunal, uh, it, there was a pushback, an immediate pushback, because the, there was a perception that doing so would threaten the International Criminal Court and the legitimacy and the mission of the International Criminal Court. That has really changed. That perception and that 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 thinking has really changed because it has become clear not just in Libya but in across the situations that the International Criminal Court is handling that uh, it cannot do everything. Um, that it it succeeds only in places where the stars align, where there is. It has access and there's political support and the, it, it can find the evidence and it can get, get the accused. And where, where those stars align and it can move forward, it does so. And, and, it, and the court has had successes in a number of countries where it has uh, investigated and prosecuted. But often what, what we see is um, we see uh, blockages or stalling or lack of cooperation or that the court is only able to capture part of the story. And what, peop- what, what people understood very quickly after the creation of the International Criminal Court is that the court is, is not the whole solution. It's just part of the solution, part of a, a system, not just a system of an international criminal court and domestic jurisdictions, but that they're going to have to be uh, ad hoc, gap-filling institutions and solutions to address each situation as it arises, to ensure that uh, evidence is preserved, that alternative mechanisms of justice or accountability are, 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 are put forward and advanced. So we have seen over the last you know, 10 years or so, a proliferation of these activities, whether it be uh, special commissions of inquiry or um, in for for Syria and for Myanmar, there was uh, independent investigative mechanisms that were created. Here we have now a fact-finding um, mission that's been created. And the idea of those is that they will that I think they the they, they do two things. First of all, they preserve the evidence because the International Criminal Court is only looking at a few cases. It it can only focus on a on a certain number of countries. 
a lot will be missed. You, you need to have some sort of entity, and it and this can't just fall to the NGOs, which many of them do this, but it can't be their sole responsibility, to collect and assemble and preserve evidence, forensic evidence, documentary evidence, witness evidence, and, and the like. Uh, and the second thing is, and I hope this is the case, and we'll see if this is how things turn out, uh, that the, these bodies will, will be motivators to future justice. That if you, if you collect the evidence, if it's available, one day somebody's going to say, well, we have to do something about that. We have to hold people accountable. Uh, y that y it, when the evidence has been amassed, it's harder to ignore the crimes. It's harder to ignore the perpetrators. Um, and here we've the, the opportunities are the International Criminal Court, but also domestic jurisdictions are starting to bring cases in the, there have been some there's been some activity in Libya of domestic cases being brought. Um, in Syria, cases in Europe have been brought um, and uh, and and elsewhere. So um, there are other mechanisms in addition to the International Criminal Court for, uh, criminal cases to be brought, whether it's by domestic jurisdictions, special tribunals that are set up. So, but the first step is, the first step has got to be to collect and preserve the evidence and make sure that it doesn't get lost. Um, and so, I think that the the fact finding mission for Libya is a really, as as you both uh, have said, is a an enormous uh, development and a very positive step in trying to achieve justice and a necessary complement. To the International Criminal Court. It doesn't threaten the court. It's that it supports the court. No, thanks for that, um, Alex. And you alluded very um, well. You, know, you didn't allude. You stated very clearly that the ICC is not our only option, um, and that there is other and there's other routes to accountability as well. Um, you talked about briefly universal jurisdiction, and we'll be picking that up hopefully in a different episode uh, to look a little bit more about some of the impediments to that. But one very clear impediment is. A lot of the, a lot of the individuals we we would like to prosecute through that model um, often get special mission immunity when they leave the country because they tend to be leaving for political reasons and are given immunity by the same states who are you know the same countries who really promote their um, work on universal jurisdiction and and the like. Then you get the politicians in that country or those countries issuing immunity for the same actors that their own war crimes units are investigating. So I think there's a whole thing to unpack about the flawed system um, in, in, in European capitals primarily when it comes to the enforcement of universal jurisdiction. Um, but one thing that you did talk about, and I know Marwa is going to want to probe with you because it's her other obsession other than the fact-finding mission, is this idea of... Um, special special tribunals or special courts um, who have a very specific mandate, who are not distracted by other cases and um, and are looking at one specific thing and, and perhaps historically have had more success than the than the International Criminal Court has. Um, and I, I don't want to miss the opportunity knowing that you've worked in a, at least two of those tribunals to get um, an assessment on your part of if you were designing this from scratch for Libya, what would be the better model or um, or what has been the most effective model um, to pursue accountability? The better model, if if there were no if there were no limit on resources um, and no and 
there was complete political will, the better model would have to be would have to be ad hoc tribunals because um, they if you have a court that is completely devoted to a conflict and the the investigating and prosecuting the crimes committed in that conflict, uh, first of all, the set, the very setting up of the court uh, ensures some degree of political will uh, because it, it 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 won't get set up unless there is a commitment to it and the and then once it is set up, states have some, interest in seeing it succeed and then secondly there these these cases are hard uh they're they're really challenging cases um and which which can be a surprise sometimes to people because the when they see alleged perpetrators of mass atrocity the sometimes the thought is well the crimes are so big and the, the, the liability is so obvious. Why are these cases so hard? It should be easy to prosecute these perpetrators. And, and nothing could be further from the truth because oftentimes the perpetrators are far away from the crimes. They have built all sorts of defenses and, and ways to hide their involvement in the crimes. And this is also, this is, criminal law you're 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 making a decision to put somebody an individual in jail you have to prove their responsibility beyond reasonable doubt it's not just a matter of well i think so or i know so or i read so in a newspaper it requires evidence in a court of law that can be challenged so it's it's hard and challenging and when you have an institution that is fully devoted to doing the investigating the crimes in one in in a conflict that that's the that's the best recipe for success. Um, however, that's the, those courts are expensive. They take a long time to set up. They tend to get entrenched. They they will they go on for a long time. It's hard to shut them down. And so, the the hope in setting up the International Criminal Court is that the you could develop a more efficient court to handle these cases, that there would be learning across cases, a development of jurisprudence, a, a consistent approach. Um, but, but what you lose is the kind of focus and commitment that you get with an individual, with a, an ad hoc tribunal. And so one thing that we're seeing now is, I, I don't think we'll ever return to the kind of ad hoc tribunals that we saw for Yugoslav for the former Yugoslavia or Rwanda, but but we're seeing kind of hybrid solutions. So, for example, in the Central African Republic, there the International Criminal Court has evolved, but there's also been a hybrid court set up in CAR to deal with some of the middle level and lower level cases. So I could see that solution, which which would you would get some of the advantages of a ad hoc tribunal without fully engaging and you know fully setting up the the whole full international model so it's a kind of hybrid model a kind of localized court that would um address the crimes um and and focus on one set of crimes but but not be the full-blown affair wow that is definitely music to my ears thank you alex um this is something that i have um 
also, like uh, Ilham said, uh, been obsessed about uh, over the past few years, along with the investigative body, and I think that they would complement. Um, uh, and and absolutely, this idea that um, that it would complement the court, um, and and be and and then go for the. You know, given that that Libya's domestic system is paralyzed, and that the um this, this kind of hybrid special court, uh, would be able to go through the um the more lower level, middle level crimes that are committed. Uh, I guess my question um I know that we don't want to dwell on this too much, but um although I do, um my question is what would be the threshold to trigger such a court? I mean, what do we need in order to, besides political will, which uh, I think is, is always the kind of the, the underlining factor for everything, but what, what else would we need as an ingredient to kind of get this? Um... I mean, it is political will, and that, that is a kind of, you know, that's a vague term for what we're talking about. But what you need more specifically is, in, in speaking of Libya, you would need um, a commitment within Libya, whether it was um, at a moment for the entire country or for parts of the country or or certain groups that were in control or as a result of an agreement. Um, But you would need a commitment within the country, so some kind of domestic commitment. And then you need uh, an, an international interest in this and focus on it. And... Unfortunately, we're in a moment where there's there internationally, there is less attention. Be, we're less attention being paid to these issues of accountability and justice, um, which has to do with uh, a kind of trend that we've seen over the last years towards um, less international engagement, greater assertion of individual sovereignty. Uh, you know, the obvious examples are Brexit, the, the Trump administration. Um, and, and then, of course, when you have challenges like the worldwide pandemic, um, issues of accountability and justice, which require uh, money and commitment and personnel and staffing, sometimes get pushed to the side in, in, in moments of crisis and world crisis uh, that we're facing now. But my hope is that that the the, the wheel will turn in time. Uh, that I it, it seems to me I, that that the that the that w- w- we this trend uh, away from international uh, solutions and institutions can't last. Uh, the world can't survive uh, in, in that model. Um, we we'll have to return in in. Maybe in different ways, uh, to to international approaches, uh, international cooperation, and um, you know the hope is that part of that would be a renewed commitment to uh, to accountability, and and also frankly, uh, we have to develop an understanding that that justice and accountability is part of the national security solution. It's not. It's not. It's not something on the side. It's not something an alternative. It's not a different thing. It's part part of 
part of national security, part of world security, part of um, counterterrorism is is investigating and prosecuting and holding people accountable for crimes. Um, so it's it, it that my hope is that we will develop that understanding and that commitment. Um, but that's what it's going to take. Uh, it, because this won't, this, this, that it doesn't come from nowhere. It doesn't come from, you know, it doesn't sprout from the ground. It, 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 it comes from, ultimately it comes from states wanting to do it, the domestic state and the international states supporting it. I don't know whether to thank you, Alex, because now you've, um, empowered Marwa to pursue this project wholeheartedly of uh, sort of advocating and campaigning for a sort of a car model of uh, of accountability <laughs> it's a great it's a great idea it's a long-term project of course but it's, it I is think a- and i will be reaching out alex good um, good good we clearly can go for hours and and i feel like we're getting to this kind of really great positive moment um and so i want to seize that to 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 end on a on a high note which we don't often do on libya matters um so we talked about all these options and and maybe I guess you know with in addition to um this idea of of, of you know trying to to find a supporting court or the like what more can we do to um help move the dial on criminal responsibility in Libya So I I think that NGOs and organizations like Lawyers for Justice in Libya play an essential role in this process of of creation that we've been talking about of creation of institutions of creation of political will of creation of of evidence collection and accountability um, because NGOs maintain the commitment they maintain the focus they often have the ability to collect evidence they have the ability to often to get to places that the international criminal court cannot get to um and and so i think that this it, there's no question that this world of international criminal law this new exciting world that has happened since i graduated from law school uh it would never have happened without the energy and participation and advocacy and sustained focus of ngos these are the you know, mass atrocity and investigating mass atrocity are, as I said, they're they're hard, they're expensive, they're inconvenient, and many times states would would just as soon forget about it and let it go. And uh, let's put it in the past. Let's put it behind us. Let's move on. Let's move forward. Uh, diplomats and politicians are geared, are wired to move past accountability uh, it, it, to their peril. Because we 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 understand how the failure to have accountability just plants the seeds for future conflict and future destruction and atrocity, um, but it 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 requires groups and people like you to force the political bodies to keep paying attention and keep hearing the victims, keep seeing the atrocities, see keep seeing the impunity and hold the feet to the fire of political actors and states um, to force them to do something. So I see an, I see an important role in 
in advocacy, in, dev in de creating, devising creative solutions, in collecting support, and, and even collecting evidence where that's possible to support these future efforts. Hi, it's me again. In this LFDL Explains, I'm going to talk about why this new case is controversial. A little bit of background. In 2011, the ICC issued arrest warrants for three people rather quickly. Gaddafi Sr., Gaddafi Jr., i.e. Safe, and Snusi. The fate of each of these arrest warrants was different, even if none of them resulted in any of these men taking a flight to The Hague. Gaddafi Sr.'s fell away when he died. Gaddafi Jr.'s is still outstanding and he is still wanted by the ICC. Snusi's fell away as the court ruled that it had no jurisdiction over the case. This decision is considered confusing because at the same time and since the court continued to maintain it had jurisdiction over Safe's case. It is a big concern that the ICC accepted that the Libyan state could try Snusi, despite the fact that many NGOs, including LFJL and UN bodies, raised significant concern about due process and the fairness of the trial. The court stuck to the black letter of the Rome Statute, which says that the court should take on cases where the state concerned was unwilling or unable to try the accused. It also suggested that the court was not a human rights court and that therefore it was not really for it to consider matters like due process unless it meant that proceedings would be, quote, completely lacking in fairness and fail to provide any genuine form of justice. This is obviously troubling and is a dangerous precedent. It suggests that a bare minimum of a nod to due process would suffice. The court was born in the wake of Yugoslavia and Rwanda, where the main concern was of states who were unwilling or unable. However, it did not seem to anticipate, and this ruling strongly suggests that, situations where states are all too willing to try someone. Is it really right that the court then just steps aside? So now we're entering this segment, um, which we like to call debunking the narrative. Uh, it's meant to be a quick fire round, but don't feel the pressure, um, Alex, no one has successfully been quick in responding to these in the past. Um, so here we go. The first one, um, pursuing accountability now is an obstacle to peace. Right. That's a, there, there, there's an, there's an old frequent debate that, uh, uh, and perception that accountability and peace are, are incompatible or at odds with each other. Um, uh, in fact, what we've come to realize is that Accountability is often an essential ingredient of peace that you cannot have. The, the, the slogan goes, no peace without justice. Uh, because even if you try to paper over uh, past atrocities, that won't be successful. The, 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 the failure to hold people, perpetrators accountable for mass atrocity will break through, will undo any kind of peace agreement. So um, diplomats have, have now, I think, come to realize that accountability is not a threat to peace, but an essential component of it. Uh, so the next one is the court is not strong enough to tackle the big powers. I think I would maybe take issue with the framing of that. Uh, it's not about the court not being strong enough. It's about whether there is, whether there's political will and political support. And the court, the court can only succeed when when there is political will it's that's not to say that it's a political court but it's dependent on political will and support to do its work and if the big powers support its work and in some cases it, they do then it will succeed and it can move forward uh the big powers have often been essential to these courts um getting stood up and and succeeding um of course when the courts tried 
turn their gaze towards the big powers, then things can become a little more complicated. Uh, and hopefully that's something that will develop over time and be more uh, more successful over time. But that's that's of course a challenge in the current the current stage. And the last one, um, the court is a failed project, and we should accept that. Um, and we should just accept that it's, re it's reached its sell-by date. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> That's really good. I That's short, not. Alex. That's exactly why I didn't ask that one, Adam. Don't accept it. it the, the, the court is going to have successes and failures, but the court is here to stay. And accountability is now something that we understand and expect, even if we don't always achieve it. And is, is there a myth you want to dispel? The one I would dispel is that building a court and staffing it means that the work of the states is done. And, and then we start to shift into, you often hear people talk about, well, the court succeeded at this or failed at this, as though the, the court were in control of its, fully in control of its destiny and its successes and failures were up to the work that it decided to do or did well or not. And that's just not the case. The court is is not a uh, standalone body that has a, a enormous independent authority that 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 is a completed project. It is a it's a beginning project, which is why I think it's too early to pass judgment on it. We're just beginning this project, and if people want this to succeed and think it's important. They have to insist not that the court do a better job. Well, they, they have to insist on that, but that's not sufficient. You have to also insist that the states the states commit themselves to it. And, and finally, is there a question that you came into this conversation wanting us to address that we've missed? No. You, you, you've, these have been very good questions and very thorough and a um, super interesting conversation. I've... Um, I, I could talk with the both with the two of you for hours about all of those things. It's this this call this call this yeah I, it gives a, a way that this has been done under lockdown. But this conversation has been um, has satisfied my lawyer geek immensely. So thank you so much. And it has restored my faith a bit. I I can say I'm quite the cynic. So thank you, Alex. Well, well those are both. Lawyer geek and, and restore, restoring a faith, those are two very high compliments. Thank you. I've really, I've really enjoyed my conversation with you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying Libya Matters, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. This will help us get discovered and to keep growing. To let us know what you think or to suggest any guests or topics for future episodes, please contact us on our Facebook page at Libya Matters or tweet us at Libya Matters Pod. Libya Matters is produced by Lawyers for Justice in Libya. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Libyan Justice. This season of Libya Matters was hosted by me, Ilham Saudi, Marwa Mohammed, and Mohammed Al Misiri. It is produced by Tariq Al Miri. The people who put season two of Libya Matters together are Finbar Anderson, Zaira Edwards, Mayad Al Makki, Mohammed Al Misiri. Elise Fletcher, Nada Kiswanson, Marwa Mohammed, Tim Malyanu, and me, Ilham Saudi. This episode of Libya Matters is made possible by our partnership with the International Center for Transitional Justice, ICTJ. Mm -hmm.